good then. All right, so the topic for today is about reaching people. I, I wanted to make, or I was thinking about trying to make this Sunday, since this will be the last Sunday we'll be meeting um, weekly. I wanted to make it hit home, but I realized that the more simple things sometimes are more impactful. So I decided to just go with something that's real simple, it's real basic. And it's just about being effective when it comes to reaching people and how you how we get better at that. Uh, the more common evangelism model, I should say, that's out there is very heavily focused either on apologetics or, you know, fire and brimstones, got to focus on like repenting and believing. And although that all those things are important, you know, there is a place for being able to defend your faith, defend scripture. There is a, a place, an appropriate time and place, of course, for encouraging a person to repent from their sins and believe the gospel and all that, that's all important. But we have to remember when you preach the gospel or when you tell somebody what the word of God says, Jesus said that's seed. The word is the seed or the seed is the word that's sown. And the soil that that seed lands on are people's hearts. Jesus said there's different types of soil. You have soil that's really hard, like wayside, it Seed doesn't penetrate. Then you have seed that's full of stones or rocks. And so the roots don't have any depth. And then you have soil that's full of weeds and thorns and thistles. And it chokes out any growth of the word. So what that teaches us in terms of our evangelism methods, or reaching people methods, is that you have to be aware of the kind of soil you're speaking to. Otherwise, you could be wasting your words. Because, believe it or not, not everyone likes to hear the Bible. <laughs> I know. It's like, why wouldn't everyone love to read, hear the Bible, right? Not everyone likes to hear it. And you will be preaching to or sowing seed on deaf ears if you don't know about this really simple, basic thing we're going to go over, which is about how do you handle different types of soil. And it actually has more to do with your conduct and your behavior and how you relate to a person you're talking to rather than just getting the word in them because not everyone's ready to hear it, right? That's what we're discussing. So first point on the paper here is that the gospel is always the same. This is really important. You're never compromising what the word says. Just because you're adapting to people doesn't mean you're changing the message. The message is still the same. The gospel is always the same. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, you don't have to turn there. That's just a, something cited for you that is where Paul, in a few words, says the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, rose again according to the scriptures, and was seen, he says, by Cephas and James and John, the rest of the apostles, and he says, last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. Paul's saying, that's the gospel, that's the message, it's always been the same. If you stand fast in that gospel, you'll, you will be saved. That's the message, that always stays the same. But people are all different, being uniquely created. Now, this is either a huge growing and learning opportunity for us, or it's a big problem if we don't know how to deal with it. Because even though the gospel is these, or all people are saved by the same gospel, how people are softened to hearing that gospel is all different. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So next bullet points under point number one, I'll have you turn to Psalm 3315, which is that scripture cited there. Uh, we will read that scripture and then, and then uh, read these bullet points. So. Psalms 33, we'll actually start in verse 13, just so we get a little bit of context here. 33 verse 13, he says, The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 15, this is the key verse. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. God is the one that has created every individual uniquely and every single individual's heart has been fashioned, created, formed uniquely. There's not one person you talk to that's going to be the same as another person. 
They're going to be different in their personality, their strengths, their weaknesses. Even spiritual gifts, as they show up in the lives of believers, can sometimes be reflected even in unbelievers' lives because the way that individuals are wired makes them different in their strengths, their weaknesses, their advantages and disadvantages. And God does that on purpose. He fashions everyone's heart individually. So that means, to these bullet points, again, the message that saves a person is always the same, but the things that make a person want to receive that message are all different. Keyword, what makes them want to receive it. Never compromise the message, but always adapt to the unique individual you're speaking to. Because they're created individually, uniquely. It's going to be different for everyone. As soon as you start applying a one-size-fits-all message or evangelism method to people, you will have a lot of failure. Because everyone's different. You're, not everyone's going to come to repentance the same way. Now we'll look at examples. Section 2. Each individual has their heart softened to the word in a different way. Softened meaning their soil. How you start help them to have better soil, softer soil to receive. What will make a person want to repent is always different from another. We're going to look at examples. Some people come to repent through words of knowledge about their own lives being revealed to them by someone who doesn't know them. This is the example with the woman at the well. Let's turn to John 4. Verses 17 through 19 is where we'll start. Jesus tells this woman to call her husband and to come here. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. This is where Jesus gives her a word of knowledge. This is something he knows about her that she doesn't know he knows. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. She just got called out. So now, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> oh, I found that funny. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, so on and so forth. Jews say in Jerusalem that uh, is the place where one ought to worship. Then skip to verse 39. End of the interaction, verse 39 says, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified he told me all that I ever did. So what's the one thing that this Samaritan woman remembered that made her believe and want to tell everyone else about Jesus? Exactly. Her life being revealed. That's what worked for her. Next example. Some people come to repent through miracles happening to them. There's a few examples of this. I just picked one of them. John chapter 9. You just turn a few pages and you'll get there. John chapter 9, starting in verse 6, Jesus anoints a, man, a man's eyes who was born blind with clay that he made from his saliva. That is quite the method, <laughs> quite the evangelism method, <laughs> right? Um, he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Verse 7, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed, came back seeing. Skip to verse 35. This is where we get to the end of the story. There's a lot of interaction with the Pharisees after this healing. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So this guy's ready. He's primed because he just got his eyes open. He's been blind from birth. Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus didn't have to say much in terms of the gospel. Notice he just said, believe in the son of God. Guy says, who is he? I'm ready. He says, I'm it. That's it. The guy's now a disciple from that point forward, just because of a miracle. Right? Next point. Some people come to repent simply through seeing the conduct of believers. This is another good one. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 12. Well, 11, to get a complete sentence here. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that would be unbelievers in the world, 
that when they speak against you as evildoers, they by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is people who start as your enemies. They criticize you, reproach you. They see your conduct. That's your good works. And then it changes their mind and they start to glorify God instead. That's somebody coming to repentance. That's that change of mind just by seeing your conduct. Yes. Do you think the guy that had mud put on his eyes, worship of God was just believing? Certainly included believing, but the, as far as I know, the Greek word for he worshiped him, the Greek word literally means like a bowing down prostrate at and showing reverence in that physical uh, lowliness, if you will. So that's what the Greek word means, but of course it still includes belief because you're not really worshiping God if you don't believe in him, right? So, yeah, it's a good question. So that's conduct. Uh, next one. Some people come to repent through compassion being shown to them from a believer. Go to Jude. Jude, it's only one chapter. Go to verse 22. This is where Jude is talking about saving people. So this is unbelievers that you're, we're trying to save, of course. And he says, on some have compassion making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire and hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, which gets into the second point I have written here that some people come to repent through learning of judgment and the fear of God, which is that same sentence, verse 23. He specifically says, some people compassion works for them. Other people fear does. You can't ever say everyone's saved through the compassion and grace of God, nor can you say everyone is saved through the fear of God and of his judgment. Fear works for some people. Compassion works for others. And of course, the fear of God and the grace of God with his compassion are both true. They're both relevant and they both matter, but some people have their minds changed through hearing about God's compassion and grace. Other people, it's the fear of God. And if this is just kind of a challenge, if you guys ever want to develop a skill when it comes to reaching people, learn to recognize the type of people who need compassion and the type of people who need fear. You can learn that those two categories of people will cause you to grow leaps and bounds in terms of winning souls. And it's not always going to be the way that you'd expect. Sometimes the people that seem like they have the most sin and need the fear of God, sometimes all they need is just compassion. And then there's other people who don't seem like they have a lot of sin and they need fear. So sometimes it's not what you'd expect, but you have to be aware. Some people need compassion. Some people need fear. So it's going to be different from person to person. On the fear of God topic, the second scripture I have written there is 2 Corinthians 5, 11, And that scripture says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So he's saying some people are persuaded to believe through the terror of the Lord. That's another term used in scripture for the fear of God. So keep that in mind. Next one. Some people come to repent through reasoning with believers about the word. So this is in Acts 17, 1 through 4. Paul did this a lot. And sometimes he didn't. It was adaptable. 17, 1 through 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, good enough, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. I like how it says explaining and demonstrating, but I wonder how he did a demonstration of Christ's suffering and rising again. Is this like an object lesson? Did he do a drama skit? You know? <laughs> yeah, how, how does one... Yeah, <laughs> finger puppets. <laughs> how does one demonstrate that Christ had to suffer and rise again? That's just an interesting question I've asked myself before. Um, but then he says, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, verse 4, 
And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So, how were these people saved? Reason, for three Sabbaths. So that would be like three Sundays for most churches, right? A bunch of people show up, we talk about the word, explain and demonstrate this, is, this guy is the Christ. Some people believe. So some people come to repentance through reasoning. But not everyone. There's other places like 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 where Paul says, I'm not using any reasoning. I'm just preaching to you Christ and him crucified. Sometimes just the simple message without any apologetics or reasoning works. Some people, they need the reasoning. It can be different from person to person. Next, some people come to repent through becoming jealous of the blessing of God in the lives of believers. In, in context, this is talking about Jews to the Gentiles, but I've seen this happen with others, and it certainly happens uh, in different demographics today. But you can look at Romans 11, verses 11 through 14. Romans 11, starting in verse 11, says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, talking about the fall of the Jews, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So he's talking about Jews or people he's trying to save. And he says, by any means, I want to provoke them to jealousy so that he can save them. So some people are saved because they look at a believer and go, man, I really want what that person has. And that saves them. So this is a good kind of jealousy, right? And it's a jealousy that has a very powerful influence on others and can help them get saved. Next one. Some people come to repent or are influenced towards repentance after seeing how much you, as a believer, simply have in common with them or what you've done to relate to them. This is super, super relational, super simple. You can look at this in Galatians 4.12. Paul gives an example of this. Galatians 4.12. He says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. I became like you, he says. This doesn't mean he participated in their sins. Make no mistake. He's not saying if you're talking to unbelievers, you have to be like them in every way. There's a right way of understanding this, which we'll get into in the next section, but I'm going to pause on that for now. And the other example is Acts 16, verse 3. This is one of the most extreme examples you will find in Scripture of Paul and his companions going to great lengths to relate to people. So it says... Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So Paul, if you read later in this chapter, he ends up reaching a lot of people, but it started because they wanted to preach in this city. And Timothy, because his father was Greek, wasn't circumcised. His dad didn't want him to be circumcised, even though his mom was Jewish. And they wanted to reach these Jewish people, but the Jewish, this particular crowd of Jewish people would not listen to Timothy, let alone allow him even in their presence to speak to them, unless he was circumcised. So Paul went and circumcised him so that they could build a bridge with a group of people, right? So this is like, he even they went to the extent of being pained in order to be able to talk to somebody, right? So, of course, this can be taken to an extreme, but in this case, this isn't an extreme because Paul wanted an opportunity with Timothy to speak to these people, and they would have been greatly resisted and persecuted unnecessarily if Timothy wasn't circumcised. So he did this to build a bridge it's kind of weird after i i read that because he had they had just told the church you know that you didn't have to be circumcised 
And then the next chapter, Paul's like circumcising Timothy. And so I was struggling to understand why he would tell him they don't need to do this anymore and then do it. Right. Yeah. It's a different motive. Chapter 15 says, don't be circumcised or try to keep the law to be justified before God. But he's saying by this example, it is okay to be circumcised as a Greek if it's simply about having more of an influence with Jews so that you can talk to them. So they're not doing it for their relationship with God. They're doing it for their relationship with people. That's the difference. And so if Paul went, Paul took it that far. Now, I've, I've sometimes tried to imagine, you know, what did, what did it look like that, you know, Paul went and circumcised Timothy? Like, he did, did he do it himself? Like, I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> point being, it's a very awkward, uncomfortable, painful experience, and he, they were willing to do it for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. I don't think it's a metaphor. I, th- I think he actually circumcised him. Yeah, because back then, if you guys know this historically, when you'd stand before like a council of Jews, they actually would have you drop your pants. Like, so like, yeah, like they, it was, it was all men and they would say, Hey, if we're going to, if you're, we're going to let you talk to us, we got to see, you know? So like, that's literally what happened. So, you know, yeah, we don't have to talk about that anymore though. That's yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, next, (laughs) next one. (laughs) So uh, all those scriptural examples and that example of circumcision, all that that was about was some people hear you or are softened to you. They're softened to your words simply by seeing what you're willing to do to be in common with them or to relate to them. That's what Paul was doing for the Galatians. That's what he did with Timothy and Acts. We should do the same thing. Next point. Some people come to repent through hearing and seeing a powerful rebuke, even towards someone else. So this is like you're in a group of people. Some person says something wrong and you get super bold and just straight up rebuke them like in front of everyone. That's what Paul did and actually got someone saved, which is interesting. So Acts 13. And this is like this is a serious rebuke. Like he's not playing around. Um, it's, it's so serious that sometimes somebody who's uninformed might read this and think that Paul was not being moved by the spirit, but he was. So Paul is trying to speak to this proconsul who's basically a Roman, uh, politician. It says this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Verse eight, Elemas the sorcerer for so his name is translated withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So this, he's staring this guy down and says, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. That is quite the rebuke. I've never heard anything like that from anyone else, you know, other than Paul here. It says, and immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this guy's like, man, whatever these guys are saying is powerful. Look what happened to this guy, right? So even rebuking somebody resisting the gospel in front of others can be a show of boldness that convinces people just by the boldness and the authority of the teaching itself. Next point is some people come to repent through having their sin rebuked or exposed by the law of God. This is similar to the fear of God, but you'll find this in first Timothy chapter one. We'll turn there. First Timothy chapter one, and we will start reading in verse eight. But we know that the law, this is the law of Moses, 
the Ten Commandments per se, is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. This is where Paul says that you should use the law when you're dealing with people in sin as a way of exposing their sin. It's one means that you use the law according to its rightful purpose to convict people of their sins. A uh, good friend of mine said to me, and I, I keep this in mind, that as a believer, when you have the spirit, the spirit convicts you. If you're talking to a person who does not have the spirit, you have to convict them. And you use the word, namely the law of God, to do that. You use God's word where sin is exposed as a means of convicting a person before they have the spirit. Once they have the spirit, the spirit does the convicting after that through, through their own relationship with God. But it starts with you. That's that last example there. There are many other examples that I could have written here. Those are just a few. But that italicized point at the end sums it up saying, people are drawn to repentance in a wide variety of ways and through specific words and actions that make the potential strategies innumerable. There's really no limit to the specific things you could do and words you could say. Well, if we're going to be specific, if you knew the exact number of people on the planet, there would be that number of different ways, <laughs> actually, because every person's different. Innumerable in terms of our ability to imagine, because we can't imagine all those different ways. If you want to be the most effective at winning souls, you will need to discern and hear from the Spirit to know exactly what to do for each individual. A way of, or an analogy of a way of understanding this would be, if you, without the help of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing without the help of the Holy Spirit, went and tried to find what a person needs specifically to repent, knowing that 8 billion people are on the planet. That would be like trying to find a specific grain of sand on an entire beach full of trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of grains of sand. It's, you can't find that on your own. But the Holy Spirit knows because he knows every individual. The, the Spirit was part of what the Father used to create every individual heart uniquely. So the Father is the one who knows what that person needs, and that's why your relationship with the Spirit and your ability to hear and discern is so critical. Because that's how you adapt to people the most effectively. So section three. Are there any other questions or comments so far before we move on? Okay. So number three. In order to win all kinds of people to the kingdom, we need to be able to adapt to individuals and relate with them Uniquely, what we're going to look at for this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Nine nineteen, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. So, Let's just pause there. We'll keep that verse on the screen. When he says, though I am free from all men, that's his way of saying, all that matters really is what God thinks about me, who I am in Christ, and I'm free from all men in the sense that no person now gets to determine who I am or what I'm worth or what I ought to believe. What God says is what matters. You, we all as believers, we have a freedom from all men in the sense that we 
have no reason to listen to what others have to say if it contradicts the word. Because God is our authority. And God determines who we are. But Paul says, even though you have that kind of freedom from people, you still are to make yourself a servant to all people. And he says, the reason is so that you'll be able to win more people. So then he talks about what it means to be a servant to all people. That's what he's discussing. So how, for the purpose of winning souls, do you make yourself a servant to everyone? And that's what he describes in the following verses. Verse 20, here's how you do it. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To the point where he even had Timothy circumcised, right? That I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law to the weak. I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. He's saying I serve everyone really by being relatable to everyone. That's his point. That requires you to sacrifice. This is the servitude part. This requires you to sacrifice your preferences, your imaginations, your opinions, your agenda, your impatience in order to be for a person exactly what they need. That takes time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Amen. Yeah. Perfect opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, common ground is important, and we're going to talk about that more. So, yeah, again, the, the main point from that scripture is being relatable requires you to sacrifice your preferences, and that's how you serve people, right? Right. So, uh, then we can also look at uh, 1 Corinthians 10, next chapter, there's an additional point about this, similar strain of thought, First, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 32 and 33. Paul says, after he tells everyone, whatever you do, do to the glory of God, verse 32, he says, give no offense either to to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Offense here means basically a cause to sin or to stumble. In other words, don't be a reason on purpose for someone to want to run further away from the gospel. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can do to help yourself be better at not doing that unintentionally, but especially don't do it intentionally, right? That's what give no offense means. And he's saying whether you're, whether you're dealing with Jews or with Greeks or the church of God, so that's believers and unbelievers, don't be a reason for a person to run further away from the gospel. And then he says in, where'd it go? Verse 33, Just as I also, here's what he says, please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Now he's not saying in our definition, be a people pleaser where you just roll over to whatever anyone wants without considering what scripture says. That's not his point. His point is pleasing men in all things in this context means 
according to the previous verse, not being a reason to stumble. That's how you'd please men in all things. So it's basically his way of saying, be sensitive to what people find offensive, what they find hurtful, the things they don't want to listen to, and don't poke at those things on purpose. Be sensitive to those things and speak in such a way that will help you maintain a relationship with someone if possible. Sometimes you can't do anything about it and people don't want to listen to anything you have to say once they know you're a believer and there's nothing you can really do at that point unless the Spirit tells you something very specific, which he might. If not, and there's nothing you can do, you have to move on. But wherever possible, don't be repulsive to people. Don't don't try to be offensive. Don't try to be repulsive. He says, please men in all things. So be relatable. Do not try to be repulsive. Don't try to be at odds with people. Find common ground. This is, this is really sometimes difficult for a lot of believers, especially who have a lot of zeal to understand this. Because when you're really passionate about something and you just want to say it to everyone, without the knowledge and discernment to do it in the right way, you will offend a lot of people and you'll destroy relationships that you could have had more opportunity in. So you need to have not just zeal, but you need to have knowledge as well. How to use what you have, not just to use it however you think you should. The next bullet points here. So here's how we apply becoming all things to all men. What did Paul really mean when he said become all things to all men? The first thing he talked about was he became as a Jew to the Jews or as a Gentile to the Gentiles. One moment. His point is find common ground with the person's religious or personal beliefs. That's what Jew versus non-Jew is referring to, a person's religious beliefs. And that's in verses 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians 9. In other words, talk about the beliefs you each have that are the same or similar before you talk about what's different. What was your question? So we're supposed to be relatable, but not like conform to like in this setting, like 2023. Right. You would like go be relatable like, oh yeah, another day, another dollar. But you wouldn't like conform and complain about everybody else at the job. Just for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, what I mentioned earlier, this does not mean you sin the same sins, right? You don't participate in the evil practices of people you're trying to reach. Because that, that does exactly the opposite of what you want. That's called blaspheming the gospel, which is where you put a stain on Christ and his message because now you've associated that name with the sin that you're practicing with unbelievers. That's not what Paul is talking about. He never said, I became a sinner around sinners. Not his point. He talked about becoming as a Jew. That's beliefs, religious beliefs. Then he says, to the weak I became as weak. That's being relatable in terms of a person's struggles and being able to offer solutions to those struggles. In context, of course, with the rest of the New Testament, you do not practice the same sins as the sinners you're talking to. You avoid that. But you should be relatable and identifiable by your ability to speak to the beliefs they're dealing with, the struggles they're facing in life, the problems and the challenges they're facing in life, that kind of thing. Were you going to say something? Okay. He became relatable, right? Exactly. So, as I mentioned, and I'll say it again, you can talk about the beliefs you each have that are the same or similar before you talk about what's different. If you show up and first thing you do, guns blazing, is tell them everything about how what you believe contradicts what they believe, you have instantly become an opponent. And you don't have relationships where you're in opposition. That's why it's healthy to start with what you have in common. Paul did this in Acts 17. He started with what they had in common. The next one, where Paul talks about weaknesses, find common ground with a person's weaknesses or struggles. This means to empathize with their weaknesses and offer practical solutions. Talk about struggles and meet them where they're at. So we'll pull up 2 Corinthians 11.29 real quick. 
1 Corinthians 9.22 is where Paul says, to the weak I became as weak. 2 Corinthians 11.29, he says, who is weak and I am not weak. That's his way of saying, if any person talks about a struggle they have, I have my own struggles too, right? I'm not the only person on the planet who's strong in every area. He's saying, I've got weaknesses too. I've got struggles too. So if somebody is going to tell me about a weakness they have, I can relate. Again, relatability is the point. So how do you do that? Part of it is, as I wrote here, meet a person where they're at and offer practical solutions. This is really important when it comes to conversations where a person has things that they care about, their interests, their struggles. And if they're trying to share their heart about some difficulty they're facing, and all you want to talk about is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Now you've come across to that person as somebody who doesn't care about them. You just care about your message, which they don't even have any respect for yet anyway. Right? So Paul says, if somebody has weakness, that's issues, struggles, challenges, be as a as a person who is weak and talk to them in the same way, that looks like relate. Say, hey, I've faced that before too. Or I know someone else who has. Here's what has helped. Here's a solution. Practical solutions shows a person you care about what they care about. And that's what softens them. Because now you're somebody that they actually want to trust. You're giving them counsel they want to believe rather than a message they don't understand or respect. That will help you get to the point where you'll be able to share the gospel and they'll listen to it because they trust you. A person's not going to trust God if they don't have some trust for you first because you represent God, right? If you're claiming this message that this person should trust in Jesus, but you're not trustworthy and you're not faithful and you don't care and you're disinterested and you're aloof and cold, the person's not going to want to trust in Jesus if that's the kind of person you are. Uh, I was just talking about this actually with Connie and one thing that you can realize too is that sometimes people don't want your advice right now. So you gain trust by maybe you have to listen to them three or four times first and just let them talk and vent and Absolutely. You know, work things out and then they may open up to you at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the person. Some people will take advice really quick. Other people, like Laura said, is all about listening. Because one weakness can be that they don't, not taking advice well or not receiving correction or counsel is a weakness. So if you're being as they are, then the way that you would be sensitive to that weakness is just by listening and not talking. Because you know they're not ready for that yet. You know? And other times you can barely know a person. I did this for somebody the other day. Uh, it's a um, Muslim friend of mine, and I corrected him for talking too much in, in the middle of our conversation. And he actually received it really well. I mean, at first he didn't, but then afterwards, when we were driving away, he texted me and said he really appreciated what I said and said he would talk less next time. So, like, he took it, right? And that was one of those moments where, like, I knew it was appropriate. It was a little bit uncomfortable because he really, really likes to talk but he did receive it well, <laughs> you know? And I knew that would be helpful for him, right? And I, I gave him counsel that was like, hey, people will want to listen to you more if you restrain your words and they'll be more interested in you if you talk less. This will help your relationships. That was my motive. I wanted to help him with the people in his life. I'm not saying this just so that I can point out his sin, right? Because he doesn't respect the gospel yet, but he does respect advice that will help him be a better talker, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I cared about what he obviously cares about, which is talking, you know? So I gave him counsel that has to do with talking, right? There's another friend of mine who he wants to be a comedian or be better at being a comedian. He wants to be funny, right? And he doesn't listen to like hardly anything when it comes to like basics of the Bible, but he will listen to scriptures that talk about humor. No pun intended, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's it's great because like, I, there's two scriptures, like, you know, it talks about coarse jesting, where it says, you should speak to edify, not to break down. 
right? That's one scripture. Another one says in Proverbs, um, as a person who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is one who curses his neighbor and afterwards says, I was only joking, right? So like I use those two scriptures. The one is in Ephesians 4 and the other is Proverbs. Um, I forget the reference. And we talked about those scriptures and he respected those and I explained to him why they're practically helpful. And that if you want people to think you're funny and like you, then don't break people down. Don't tear people down with your humor. It should be something that brings a person more joy. You know? So we talked about that and he really liked that. And our conversations little by little have gotten to those layers of his life where he has interest and where he has care. And that's what has made him want to listen more. And eventually it will get to a point where we can get to the deeper, more central gospel focused issues. But you always have to start with what a person will listen to. If they won't listen to certain topics, don't touch on those topics. Because if they're not listening, it's bad soil. You're not going to get through if you're talking to bad soil, right? So talk about where, where people have interest already. Okay, yeah, so practical solutions, talk about struggle, struggles, meet them where they're at, listen, so on and so forth. So that italicized point underneath that. Finding common ground or talking first about what you have in common makes you warm and relational. If you will be able to have a relationship with an unbeliever to lead them to Jesus, you will need to be relational. You can't have a relationship without being relational. Whereas talking only about how different you are or being disinterested in a person's cares or earthly matters will unnecessarily make you seem hostile and you will destroy your opportunity. You don't want to appear hostile unnecessarily to a person. There are going to be times, as I mentioned earlier, where you can't avoid being hostile. It's just called the offense of the cross. Sometimes people just are so hardened that they won't listen to anything a believer has to say once they know they're a believer. You can't avoid that. If you can avoid it, please do. Because you don't want to harden a person more if they don't need to be hardened. Right? So just be, be careful. Be interested in a person's cares or earthly matters. Last section, this is just some practical stuff. If you want to be better at learning what individuals need, or if you want to learn what individuals need, here's what you can do practically. Ask them lots of questions about their lives so you understand better. That'll show a person you care. Even just that's really powerful. Ask lots of questions. Listen really well and watch closely for details. Here's how you know you're listening. You're not coming up with what you're going to say next while they're talking. That's how you know you're listening, right? You're super present. You're actually looking for, in what they're saying, what you want to ask more about. That's what you're doing when you're listening. If you need to give a piece of counsel or advice, then you can listen to them so you can be better at framing the counsel you give. And that's fine, but your motive still has to be to help the person, not to just expose them if that's not what they need, right? So listen really well. Watch closely for details. Here's another good one that you can do on your own. Study scriptures that deal with per people's earthly problems so you have understanding of how to bring solutions. Proverbs is great for this. Read lots of Proverbs, lots of Old Testament, actually, because there's a lot of really practical issues and struggles that people in the Old Testament faced and somebody showed up and gave them a solution. One of them, you can apply to businesses where Moses is dealing with literally 2 million people and his father-in-law comes and says, hey, you got to appoint delegates so that you don't have to deal with all these people yourself. Delegate responsibility. That's practical advice, right? So you can find those types of things in scripture. Starting in Proverbs is a great place to start. And just simply take your own notes. Just for this type of situation, Here's what Proverbs says is the solution for this type of situation. Here's the solution. Just kind of write those out where you find them and let that kind of organize your thoughts so that you're better equipped when you're hearing about people's challenges. Because you want to be able to have the know-how to deal with those issues. And a good part of this too is that you don't have to say, and most of the time you shouldn't actually, say it's from the Bible when you're giving people a piece of advice from the Bible. 
Because if they don't respect the word yet, as soon as you say, the Bible says, they have now lost respect for what you're going to say, even though it's sound advice. They won't listen to it because they don't respect the word yet. So you just say that it's coming from you out of your own care. And if they're building trust with you, they're going to receive your advice a lot better. And as, again, as you build that trust, then they're going to develop respect for you. And then you can start talking about how this is from the word. Scripture says, this is what I believe. This is how I live. The, this, the instruction I live by is, is the word of God, so on and so forth. In doing this, this is a great strategy because you are, you are by giving advice, not saying it's from the word. It's like you're laying a trap filled with the finest honey. That's what you're doing. You're putting something precious that will powerfully impact a person's life and laying it as a trap in a good way. Not like trap for a person's destruction, but to trap them into the love of God. Because that's what you want them to encounter is the love of God. And you can use practical advice without saying it's from the Bible to do that. And again, Proverbs is great for that. Next is... You can pray for them in your quiet time and listen for the spirit or discernment about their needs. So we've talked about the past couple months or so growing and hearing from the spirit. If you want to go back and look at those teachings, they're really helpful for this idea. But basically when you take time, if you take time in the mornings or whenever you do to pray, you can simply, as we've talked about, just get quiet. You can put a cover on your eyes, plug your ears, whatever. Just don't be distracted and just pray for that person. Just think about them and then just get quiet and listen. And thoughts can be brought to you from the spirit about this person, or you can have discernments about that person. If you're thinking clearly and not muddled with all these opinions, clear all that stuff out, then you'll be able to hear discernment better and hear the spirit better. And that will help you know, okay, I should do this. And I actually applied this when I was talking about my Muslim friend. This was a few weeks ago we were going on a walk together and I was 10 minutes or 15 minutes early. Uh, not on purpose. I showed up just at the time that uh, we had agreed upon, but they're 15 minutes late. And so I said, well, my, I might as well take these 15 minutes cause I hadn't done it yet. I'll take these 15 minutes to just get quiet in my car and just try to pray and, and listen. So I did that. And I remember that the thought that came to me was to focus on watching for their interests in our conversation. And then this other thought about a specific point that was going to come up in the conversation, which did, um, was also brought to me. And it had to do with, I won't get into details, but it had to do with a certain idea in Islam. So in the middle of our conversation, I, all I'm focused on is, okay, I'm just supposed to watch for what their interests are. And that's what I did, listen really closely. And it created a lot of really, really, really good conversation that made them feel very heard and appreciated. And then I, uh, they ended up bringing up the other topic that I had heard was going to come up while I was in my car. And so then we started talking about that. And I was like, oh, that was what I was hearing in the car, right? So that type of thing can happen. But if you don't give yourself the opportunity to get quiet and listen for that stuff, you, you might not come to you. Right? So that's another thing you can do that's practical if you just want help in your, your own relationships. Last point, this one is so key. Be extremely patient with the building of relationship and do not come with any agenda or deadline of your own. Go at a pace that's comfortable, but be consistent. So this means you shouldn't do this. I'm going to talk to this person. We're going to have three meetings. The first meeting, I'm going to talk about this. Second meeting, I'm going to talk about this. The third meeting, I'm going to talk about this. And if they don't get converted by the third meeting, then I'm going to leave them to somebody else. And I'm not going to talk to them ever again. Do not, <laughs> do not do that, okay? Very big mistake. Being patient means you're willing to go at the pace that the person you're talking to finds comfortable, meaning they're willing to keep talking to you. They're not standoffish. They're not offended. They're, they want to keep talking, right? And they may not reach out to you every time, but when you reach out to them, they will respond and they will want to keep talking to you. That's the first way that patience shows up. The second is don't set a deadline. Don't think I have to talk about this by this time. Don't do that. You talk about what they care about. 
and listen to it and give it give good counsel if you can. And others don't have an agenda. So don't show up that I really want to make sure I get to this point at this at a certain time in the conversation. Don't do that. You know? um, with this Muslim friend of mine, I I had spent this was a, the third time I'd hung out with him. The first two meetings, all I did was let him talk and just listened and asked him more questions. I didn't give him any any counsel, any advice, nothing. And I think that probably helped him receive what I said later because I had spent so much time listening to him. He knew that I wasn't trying to shut him down the entire conversation. I spent a lot of time listening, and I think that probably made him more open to what I had to say later. So be patient, build relationship, don't have an agenda or a deadline, but you do have to be consistent. That means keep approaching, keep wanting to talk to the person, keep reaching out to them. That's about the only thing you need to be urgent about, is being consistent. Beyond the consistency, be patient. Let it go at a pace they're comfortable with. Talk to them about what they care about. You'll know when the time comes that you can bring up the gospel. That usually is pretty clear because a person will usually give it away either by asking you a question about what you believe or by just a change in their conduct when God comes up in conversation. They are usually, in their body language, more open to it. But a really dead giveaway is they just start asking you questions. They'll just say, hey, like, I noticed I think you're a believer. What, what, tell me about that. You know, usually they'll ask you. Um, so keep that, keep that in mind. Okay. Any last questions, comments? Yeah. So I've heard the term relational evangelism. I'm, I kind of missed your little intro in front. So would, would you consider that's what this is and there's different ways to reach people? Ooh, um, it's hard to categorize different types of evangelism because I would just simply call this evangelism, period. Um, the only way in which I would say it's more relational is that it's focused on having relationships with people. The only other kind of evangelism that's really not relational is where you're somebody's like preaching to a big crowd of people. There's not really any relationship in that, so all you can do is kind of give a, you know, a big message. So simply put, I would say, when you're talking to a crowd of people, delivering a message from the word is going to be more effective. If you're talking to a individual, relationship is going to be more effective. Okay, so I see what you're saying. So, for example, yesterday, there was a guy at a funeral on the corner. He came in for some food. So... I didn't build a relationship with him, but I listened to his, you know, I asked him, can I pray for you about anything? So I'm, you're saying even in that short, brief react, you know, we had a relationship in that moment. Is that what I'm hearing? It's the start of one. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I'll never see the guy again in my life, but sure. I still sort of yeah, evangelized. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> So you're saying if you're in a situation where you're probably not going to see the person again. Okay. So, yeah. If you're talking to a individual and you only have one chance, still do whatever you can to show that you care about them. So, yes, still be relational, still be relatable, still be sensitive to what might offend them, so on and so forth. But remember that you don't have to give the ultimatum, final decision, are you going to receive Jesus or not? Because that person might not be ready for that. It's better to sow a seed or just simply help soften them because you're not the only believer in the world, right? There's other people that also know Jesus that will help them. And I know sometimes it seems hard to believe because there really is not a lot of believers out there. And it's like, some, I mean, I feel this way too. It's like, man, like, I don't know. Like, I just talked to this person. They've said nobody in their entire life has ever stopped to talk to them or pray for them about anything. So it's like, it might be another 40 years and nobody ever approaches them. But don't think that way. Because God's will is done. His plan is perfect. And he's, if God knows that they're going to receive the gospel, because he knows the end from the beginning, he will make sure he sends the people that they need. So you don't have to be the person to go for the jugular and try to convert them. Because... They might not be ready for that. Your job is either to help soften them, water the soil, 
And maybe if it's the right time, you can sow a seed, which is talking about scripture, but do whatever you can to just help soften them at least and focus on that and go from there. Okay. So that just to sum up this talk right here. So that is where there's a difference for me. I used to try to go for the jugular with everyone that I was talking to mm -hmm. and you know, Ron even asked me, did you pray, did a prayer of salvation? Cause that's what you used to do. I used right. to go right for that. Mm -hmm. So I said, no, he wasn't ready. So I've learned that no one comes to the father unless he draws them. And if there's right. an open door where they're ready to receive Jesus, we have to be sensitive to that. Exactly. But we're still listening, you know, which I did. He wanted prayer. And so, but he wasn't ready to say a prayer of salvation. Right. Yeah. Most people aren't going to be. Yeah. Stranger or someone. Yeah, someone told me that when you pray for someone, particularly a stranger, they'll never forget it. And I think that's true. I would agree yeah. with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even if even if they even if it's a negative memory, mm -hmm. it's still a memory. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's like because I've prayed for strangers, but I've never gone like I said for the jugular. I, I've prayed for what was relevant at that time. <laughs> so, like, uh, yeah. I was in Wisconsin, and my friend and I were coming up a steep hill, going down to some falls, and there's a couple there, and she said she had a heart issue, and she was, she was taking a pause. So I said. So I stopped there and I prayed for her, but I didn't pray about salvation. I just prayed for what was affecting her at that time mm -hmm. yep. in Jesus's name, of course. Yeah. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You can soften people that way. It's good. Yeah. It's good. But work. that can't be an excuse to not be sensitive to pray for them. Right. Right. Again, saying that, oh, I just want to soften people. I don't want to talk about the word. Okay. If you're operating out of fear, if you're afraid of preaching the gospel, that's the wrong motive. You're supposed to be doing this actually because you have no fear of preaching the gospel and you actually have to hold back to make sure you don't overwhelm the person. That's the more biblical state of mind, right? You're not doing this because you're afraid of it. You're doing it because you're not afraid of it and that you have to be sensitive to what a person needs. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Be a friend. Yeah. Be a friend for us. That's, that's a good idea. Yeah. Did you have something to say? Over here? Did you start lifting your hand? No? Okay. Yeah. You should, yeah. Be nice. There you go. Test, test. I was going back to you when you said to be super present. Yeah. Listening, listening really well and actually looking into what the person's saying to ask more about what they're saying instead of, oh, I, I am crafting your response. Mm -hmm. um, also, something that has worked well for me is to ask people, what does that mean to you? So if they say, you know, I'm sad, you know, just as a really easy example, then I'll ask, well, what, what does that mean to you? So that I can really understand what they're where they're coming from. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just a little more intimacy in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, great way too. If if you feel like it's an appropriate time to give a person counsel, I got a really good piece of practical advice from a couple of friends the other day too. Um, they're saying that you can say, you know, a person starts saying something, and then you can say, "What do you mean by that?" And then, "How did you come to that conclusion?" And then, "Have you considered?" And then you can give your piece of advice. So that way, you're asking questions so that you're showing you're hearing a person. But then, if it's appropriate, you can give some counsel that's biblical at the same time. At the end of that, you know, that's another good strategy you can apply. Last questions, comments? Okay. So that is basics about reaching people uniquely. I would encourage you guys to, if you know of relationships in your life where you haven't been aware of these things, then just start being aware of it. Start applying it. You know, it's real simple. And it really lifts the burden off of you because now it's not about finding where it's you're supposed to preach the gospel it's just just be there be a friend show that you care about them love them uh, and that will give you greater opportunity and i would say to rule of thumb if you have the chance to have a relationship with a person go for it if i'm talking to somebody and it's you know in the metro area and i know i could talk to them again i'm going to assume that i will and so I either give them my phone number or I take theirs. It depends on the person. 
I'll reach out if I can, or I'll ask them to reach out. Um, I just did this just yesterday to another person that talked to them briefly, and I gave them my phone number on a piece of paper. If they want to reach out, they can. And putting yourself out there as saying, hey, I want to be available for this is important, because you don't want to be that person that just shows up to tell them one thing and then doesn't care about the rest and then just walks away. Right? Um, if you have a chance for a relationship, you should go for it. I'll say a closing prayer, and then we will move on to the meal that we're going to share. We'll go from there. So, Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to learn about this and just help us.